decided to sit on the side here. Um, my name is Ellen. I'm a food addict, grateful for my recovery one day at a time. I've been abstinent for 31 years back to back. I'm maintaining a hundred plus pound weight loss. And today is the most important day of my recovery. And um, my journey with food addiction, I mean, my earliest memories are not just about food. It's about food and feeling guilty or sneaky or secret or whatever. It's about trying to open the refrigerator so quietly that no one else could hear when I could stab my finger in something and put it in my mouth before anyone would notice. Um, it was hoarding food when I was at the age of five. It was um, being the tallest, biggest glasses wearing female in my elementary school. Um, one of my really telling memories is that when I was, um, I'm trying to change the view so I'm not just looking at me, okay. Um, when I was in kindergarten, right at the entrance to the, uh, the door where we would line up to go into the school, um, there was a giant fir tree. It was sort of, you know, one of those conical shaped trees. And I realized that it was sort of like an umbrella. If you slipped under the outer branches, inside was a space. And in that space, I could see people, but they couldn't see me. And I remember having the battle with myself of whether or not to eat my snack right away. I had this little baggie of not, I didn't even have cool snacks. Everybody else had name brand little things. I had like this little baggie of whatever. And I would, you know, tell myself all the things that I knew already at age five, that if I ate it now, I was going to be humiliated when it came to snack time and I didn't have a snack. I would be more humiliated because I would try and mooch other people's snacks. And so these multi already age five, guilt, shame, um, disgust, self-disgust. And I had this conversation with myself. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, can you give me a 10 minute warning when I have 10 minutes left to, um, to go somebody? Or let's see, uh, what, what time would that be? Someone able to do that for me? I'll do that for you, yeah, Ellen. Thank, thanks, Stacy. Okay. Um, so I'm having this conversation with myself in which, you know, I, I know all the horror that will happen if I eat my snack. And so I remember thinking, well, I'll just take one bite. I'll just take one bite. And the next thing I realized, I'm looking at my hand with an empty baggie in it. And just like everything drained from me because I already knew, you know, what was facing me. And I did that every single freaking day <laughs> of my kindergarten experience. Um, I remember in second grade, this is the era when they would march the entire class down to the nurse's office to be weighed and to have our height taken. And I remember at, so I guess this was age seven or eight, it was my turn to get on the scale. I took my shoes off so that I would weigh less. I didn't even know what I weighed, but I knew that I was going to be the, the most. And so I really invented 
weigh and pay diet clubs <laughs> in the early year without ever participating in one because that was my attitude. Please let you know every single ounce come off. I was the tallest. I was the strongest. I, you know, the fattest. And every single taunt that was directed toward me when I was a child, I still remember all of those things. And the things that I would do to try and conceal how heavy I was. When I would seesaw with the other girls, I was too heavy for them to seesaw with me. So I would use my own legs to like make the motion of going up and down. So they thought that they were just seesawing with a normal person, whereas I was creating this whole experience. So it would look like I could do that. On and on and on and on and on. When um, in, in my days, no malls and um, gross, uh, clothes shopping, we'd go to the local, it was a version of a five and 10 and they had a little department for every single thing, you know, uh, hunting, games, dresses, you know, girls' dresses, whatever. And I got to shop at the, there was one clothing rack and it was directly under a giant sign that said Chubette. And every single size that was a size for me had an X after it. And I think I was maybe in second grade and my grandmother took me shopping because my mother was very ill. I did not know that she was dying, but my grandmother took me shopping and I saw the most beautiful red and white striped dress. I was just, I couldn't believe it. And I couldn't believe there was one that would fit me. And it was striped. And my grandmother said to me, well, stripes, horizontal stripes are not very slenderizing. So let's not get that dress. So it all, every single thing that I experienced as a child was repeated again and again and again and again throughout my life. I was a retail store manager very unhappily for several decades. And um, this, I was in my, I guess, 20s or 30, 20s. And um, I, my leg felt wet and I thought maybe someone spilled a soda on me or something like that. And I touched my pant leg and my whole hand was bright red. So I went into the bathroom and I couldn't pull my pant leg up because my, they were too tight. So I had to remove my pants. And as I'm doing this, a spray of blood is going everywhere I turn. It's going across the wall, on the cabinet, everything. A varicose vein had burst. Um, and I'm standing there thinking, I wonder how long it takes before you bleed to death. And then I got somebody to, one of the employees to drive me to the emergency room. And it was so crowded I was just allocated to this cot, whatever, that was in the hallway. And my exam had to occur in the hallway. And because I couldn't pull my pant leg up, I had to take my pants down in this public place, no screens, no nothing, and all these adorable young doctors. And I, could, and I didn't shave my legs, because of course, why would I? No, no you know, human creature is going to see me. And, um, I just remember the look of revulsion on one of their faces when he looked at my unshaved fat leg with varicose veins and one exploded, you know. So anyway, that, that was my life prior to program. My clothing uh, style was 
if it fit, I bought it. If it fit and there were five colors of it, I had my week's wardrobe. Um, and I would be grateful, grateful to find more than one that would fit me. I, before I was older, I would lived in an apartment and I had to go to the laundromat um, to uh, do the laundry. And my pants would always wear away be between the thighs. And I remember, you know, and I would sew them and patch them and whatever. And I remember just being in the laundromat, looking at these pants and shaking them and saying, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And because they betrayed me, my pants betrayed me because there was so little that was available to me. I spent my life trying to diet. My first diet was at age 12. I ate three, then the popular diet drink of the day, these kind of semi-fake milkshakes. I would freeze them. They were 300 calories each. And I would eat one for breakfast, one for lunch, and one for dinner. Winter didn't matter, frozen. I'd be shivering, I'd be shaking. And the reason I did that was to slow me down because if I had a liquid, it would be gone in seconds. So I, as my um, disease progressed, my isolation was profound. And I interacted with people every day. I led a staff at that time of, you know, 40 people. I, you know, I, but no one knew me because anytime I had tried to express what was going on in me, the misery, they would suggest in a very friendly way, well, why don't you go on a diet? You know, and the doctors, well, why don't you go on a diet? You know, and I remember I was, I think I was 18 telling my closest, dearest friend that I, you know, I couldn't go on a diet. And she said, why don't you just try this? And I literally felt like I was in a boat, like a rowboat, tethered to the shore at the edge of the ocean. And that an ax came down and, you know, severed the rope. And I just started floating out to sea because I was so disconnected. I had no words for what I was feeling. I did not know there was such a thing as a disease of compulsive eating. And I didn't know that um, I wasn't able to stop. You know, I thought I failed all those diets. And in reality, the diets failed me because diets do not work. They work temporarily as long as you can be on a diet. By the end of my dieting days, my diets were maybe three days, then maybe two days, then maybe a day. And I never knew that when they said this was a progressive illness, that that's one way it would manifest itself, that I could not stop eating, I could not go on a diet. And I, no matter what weight I got to, it wasn't the right weight because it wasn't thin enough. So there came a time in which I moved to take an advanced job at the same company to was a multiple store manager, still despised it. And um, by that time I was going to, I was, I was eating in front of people by that time. And I would go to the fast food restaurant in the mall and I would get soup. I would get a sandwich. 
I would get fries. I would get a dessert and just, you know, this is stuff. Any one of those things would have stopped one person, but that was my daily lunch. And by then I was eating absolutely nonstop. I would eat breakfast at home. I would have something, take something with me so I could eat in the car on the way to work. When I did the banking in the mid morning, I would stop and buy everyone their snacks, of course, eating my snack in the car and then having snack that I ate in front of them and then having the snack that I hid, then lunch, repeat for the afternoon. I'd stop on my way home at a fast food restaurant to have a complete dinner. I'd stop at the convenience store to get my nighttime stash. I would go home and eat dinner and then I would have my nighttime stash. And by the end, I was doing that with alcohol because the best experience I could have was to be unconscious. That's, that's what I was hoping for, that I would, that, that's how I could tolerate my life. And so in, in my move, took this new job and was fatter than ever and knew I had to go on a diet. I had to do it. And I had been to so many diet clubs, I knew how much, what to eat. You know, that wasn't the mystery. However, I went home on my first day of the diet. And I remember opening the refrigerator, seeing this crappy diet food inside, but also knowing that that was in excess of what I had already eaten, closing the door. Opening the door, this dance with the refrigerator knowing that I could not eat what was in there and be on a diet. And the next thing I recall, I came to somehow, I blacked out in some way in the living room, I was eating this gloppy bowl of diet food and I was crying because it was over. I just, I could not go on. And there's an expression or a quote in the big book that, um, I couldn't live with food and I couldn't live without it. So I got to that jumping off place. It was just the end for me. So I then spent several days tidying things up at work, da, 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 showing my assistant manager what to do. And then I went home and tried to commit suicide. And there was a period of months and months and months of hospitalizations at different hospitals because I kept using up the time I could have at one hospital and then I'd get readmitted at a different hospital or I don't know what the situation was. But I remember at the point I, I was in a coma, I was in restraints. I, they thought I had, was brain damaged from the, the, the drugs. And um, I just was like the living dead and I remember one day in the psych hospital, all of a sudden a food tray passed me and I, I saw the desserts on it and my appetite, my appetite exploded. And again, there I was, I knew it was over because I could not explain to anybody what this was. And I just knew as soon as I got out of there, I would try this again because there was just no point. And various things happened and I eventually was released and I was released 
the thing I told my sister to do on my way, uh, on her way to pick me up was to buy a dozen donuts for me so I could have these donuts in the car when I was driving home. So that was my big excitement for leaving the psychiatric hospital. Um, I continued in that state of misery, self-loathing, gaining ever more weight and um, being in therapy for eight years. And, you know, I had so many bottoms and each, each one was again, now is actively planning suicide, even seeing a shrink. And for some reason I had seen a sign for Overeaters Anonymous. There was a ministry at one of the local malls and they had a sandwich board out front, you know, Overeaters Anonymous, blah, blah, blah. And I mentioned it to him and he told me he thought that was a good idea. Now, bear in mind, I've been in therapy with this person for eight years. Um, and I thought, I've failed therapy. This person wants me to, you know, stop this. I can't even do therapy and go to this program. So I went to this program and I remember sitting outside, there was a bench in the mall and afraid to cross the threshold to the ministry because of that big sign that someone would see me going in and know that I was fat as opposed to just looking at me and knowing I was fat, but anyway. And I went to my first meeting and I hated it. They were holding hands. They were saying the word God. They were reading some book about some drunk. And at the end, they wanted to say a prayer. And I was out of there, out of there. And as they say, and as I've heard many times, is that, you know, you know back your misery. So I existed like that for several more years in that state of kill yourself eat more, kill yourself, eat more, try a diet. I can't do that. And this is all only conversations with myself now, because what was the point? And you would have thought that I was your therapist. You would have thought that I was the happiest person on the planet. You would have thought I was the most dynamic and charismatic leader. And that was true, except that wasn't who I was. The person that I was, was dead. So something amazing happened, a miracle happened. My older sister with whom I then came to live was morbidly obese and almost died. And some miraculous doctor understood the nature of food addiction and eating disorders and sent her to a food rehab, which were very prevalent at the time and which insurance covered and of course they stopped doing it because so many people needed it and wanted it that they couldn't possibly cover it. But anyway, she called me from this rehab and told me that she was doing this thing and that she just needed my support no matter what she did and no matter how weird I thought it was to support her. She then told me that she no longer was eating sugar or flour. And in my mind, it was like, this is ridiculous. Nobody can go for their whole life and not have a sandwich. And however, despite my feeling, 
when she crossed the threshold of our house, she maybe had lost 30 pounds. She probably had 250. I mean, she was morbidly obese, but there was this quality about her, which I, stealing a line from famous book, this lightness of being, there was something different about her, how she carried herself. And I didn't understand it at the time, but what it was, I was observing hope. She was filled with hope. And she talked about higher power, this and higher power, that and all the stuff about higher power. And it was like, I don't have one. I have no fucking idea what she's talking about. But if she could get one, maybe I could get one. And I knew that that was going to be the difference between me going on or not. So I went with her to a meeting. It was a very crowded meeting, dynamic. The people were so wonderful to me. And I kept thinking that they were just being nice to me because she was my sister. And I was just surrounded by assistance and encouragement. And this was in a hospital, the meeting. And when I went down after the meeting, it was a late night meeting, and I went into my car and I prayed that I would have a car accident and die because I knew I could never go on another diet and that there was no point. However, I didn't have that car accident. I didn't do that to myself. And instead, I heard something that they said, and they said, keep coming back, go to six meetings before you decide, get a sponsor to work the program. And that night, I asked someone to be my sponsor. We spoke after the meeting for hours on the phone as she explained to me a type of food plant that would be appropriate for me to follow. And I got the food. This is your 10 minute warning. That was when my abstinence began and I've been abstinent since that moment. And the reason I've been abstinent since that moment is for me, that one extra bite is the same thing as just stabbing myself in my heart. I cannot live without the sanity and hope and wisdom and everything of this program. I cannot take the one bite that will separate me from everything I value in my life. So the, the reason I wanted to stop a couple of minutes early is that since this is a gratitude meeting, I want I wrote down a list of things that I'm grateful for that I wanted to share. I'm grateful for my first, very first sponsee that dropped off the planet to my shock and dismay because I was told so few of us make it. And to have one hour or one day is precious. But to do that, you have to keep coming back. The moment you decide not to return, it's essentially, at least for me, it would be signing my death warrant. You may be given another opportunity. You may be given another willingness to walk through the door, but you may not. And as long as you keep coming, you will find recovery. We will help you because we have been helped and we need you to keep this going. I guess it's like a, I don't know, whatever, Ponzi scheme, not really. Um, I'm grateful for every tragedy that led me to my life in Mexico. I had um, a, a life altering surgery that caused me to go into disability, but has now provided me with a modest but permanent income so that I don't have to work. I can devote much more time to service because I don't have to work. 
I'm grateful that my sister 12 stepped me into this program and I witnessed her unbelievable, beautiful recovery for six years before she picked up and never went back a year ago um, and watch her die from all of the complications of her obesity and all of her joints were eroded and her, she'd had gastric bypass twice. And you know, she died of every way her body failed her because of the way it had been abused. And there's something called fatty liver. It's a cirrhosis of the liver, but not by alcohol, but by fat. And um, that ended up leading to other damage that then killed her. Um, I'm grateful that I was shown the importance of using the tools. And this is my absolute belief. If you use every tool every single day, you will be in recovery. Every tool, every single day. It's a guarantee. You can call me, one of the tools is telephone, five times if you need to in a day. I, I was at a wedding and I didn't have any phone numbers with me and I wasn't skilled at social weddings and stuff like that. And the meal wasn't served till 10 and the wedding had started at five. I didn't have any phone numbers with me. This was, you know, pre cell phone, whatever. I think I used a, a pay phone or something. I called myself my own home number and left this wild woman ranting and raving how I couldn't deal with this and blah, 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 and whatever. And it didn't matter that I didn't reach one of you. It mattered that I was willing to use the tool and I was abstinent through that event. And when I got home, I had the thrill of listening to me ranting and raving. I wish I had that message still, but the willingness to make the call is what got me through that moment. I'm grateful that I never have to start another diet. I'm grateful that I got to experience what it's like to be desired and loved and to have that kind of a relationship with a man. Um, I'm grateful that I live in a country now with a motto, not officially, but my motto for it is done is enough. I no longer have to sacrifice every single part of me for every single action I make to make sure it's perfect. Because, because I've worked the steps and done inventories and understand my errors in life, I can come to see myself as a human being like everybody else, and I'm allowed to make mistakes now, which is unbelievable. Um, I would never, one of the tools I used was the phone, which was early, it was like day four of my following a plan of eating, abstinence, and I woke up in bed crying because I knew if I got out of bed, I was gonna go into the kitchen and eat. Instead, I ran into the bathroom, jumped into the shower, took the shower and was just crying because I knew I couldn't make it. I could not make it one more minute. And for some reason, I was given the willingness to make a phone call at 6.30 in the morning to someone I did not know, but had seen in a meeting. And she offered to pray with me on the phone. And I had no idea what prayers were. My, my faith didn't have that kind of thing. We did it in a building. You know, it wasn't like a portable prayer that meant anything outside of that building. And she prayed with me. And I don't even know what she prayed, but I knew 
that this total stranger was sharing with me probably one of the most intimate things in the world, a prayer for me. And that got me through. And then when I got to work, I made another call and another, and the phone cord was stretched as long as it could go because I was told that anything I put before my abstinence, I lose. And that my abstinence has to be my number one priority without exception, even if it means getting fired. And I wasn't fired. And I'm grateful that I'm in Mexico only because others gave service. And a friend started two meetings in this little teeny town in Mexico that nobody can pronounce. It's called Ajijic and spelled A-J-I-J-I-C. So you can pronounce it. And I never would have moved here had program not been here. I'm glad that I got to spend one perfect day. I, get, I was able to grant the wish of someone in program that was so essential to me. I only knew her for three months. I don't even know her last name. And I was able to provide her with this one perfect day before she died in a fire. And that I was able to have that moment with her. I'm grateful for 90 diners in 90 days. And that with face-to-face -face meetings, fellowship following the meeting was essential. And we now can have that with Zoom. I'm grateful that I can shop in any clothing store, that I have clothes as old as my stepdaughter, who's now 31, that I see hummingbirds every single day and can complain about how noisy they are. I am grateful for every slogan I was ever taught that food is not an option. Anything I put before my abstinence, I lose. I'm grateful for the tradition, traditions because they show not just how this fellowship can survive, but how relationships can survive and how families can survive despite the presence of addiction. I'm grateful for the saying, nothing tastes as good as abstinence feels, and that I will never regret laying my head on my pillow at night having been abstinent that day. And that I have so many first world problems, and that I live in a country where that's so obvious that I can see how precious water is and how precious it is to be trudging home with a heavy food bag because here people grab, you know, buy a handful of cilantro or a cigarette or a diaper or whatever. And that's, that's their grocery shopping. I'm grateful that I have so many clothes now that I love that my closet has run out of room. And now I don't get anything unless I give something away. I get rid of clothes because I'm tired of them, not because they're worn out between the legs that I only have one size of clothes in my closet and that I no longer have to be ashamed to do things like go to the doctor, go to the dentist, that I won't worry about them berating me and hectoring me and admonishing me and humiliating me because I'm overweight, even if they're overweight. And mostly I'm grateful for every part of this program and that one of the readings and one of OA's daily readers, I'm not sure which one it is, the saying is, enough is a feast. And that's what I'm going to carry tomorrow into Thanksgiving, because what a blessing to be able to eat ample, delicious, appropriate food that nurtures my body and makes me available to life. And that I'm able to live life between meals now, not the other way around of having to have a continuous meal in order to survive.
So I'm available, people. If you need to make phone calls tonight, tomorrow, whenever, that's the way we're going to get through this together. So thanks for letting me share.